0: Understanding the biblical doctrine of salvation, or what's so great about salvation, is our point session this semester. And uh, we started last week, um, we've talked about why salvation is important, the three phases of salvation, you were saved, you are being saved, and you shall be saved. We've clearly discussed that. You are justified. The moment that you believe you are justified by faith alone through the grace of God. Then there is the present tense of salvation. You are being saved as we speak. And then there is the final step of salvation. And that is what we call glorification. When we will look just like Jesus and no longer will we struggle with sin any longer. And that happens at the resurrection. So there is... You, are, you have already been saved. The moment that you put your faith and trust in Christ alone, he delivers you from the spiritual consequences of sin. In other words, the moment you put your faith in Christ alone and you are saved by his grace, you are delivered from the penalty of sin. In other words, you are delivered from the consequence of your sin. You are passed from death to life. You are born again. You are delivered from the spiritual consequence of that sin, and the spiritual consequence of your sin is hell. And you're delivered from hell, and you're delivered from judgment. But you are not necessarily delivered from the consequences of your sin in this life. You might have to deal with the consequences and the decisions that you have made in this present life. You may have to deal with them because salvation doesn't always take care of the natural consequences of our sin. And sometimes we get confused about that, and we want to throw in the towel and give up and say God's not with us because God hasn't delivered me from all the consequences of my sin that I've committed. Sometimes in His mercy and His grace, there is divine reversals in events. Sometimes God works in ways that's mysterious and things are turned around, but sometimes things are not. What you have to understand in salvation, the moment you put your faith in Christ alone, you are delivered from the penalty of sin. That is hell. You're delivered from hell. You're delivered from judgment, all right? And then you are being saved. There is a continual work of salvation in your heart. That is what we call sanctification. He is setting you apart. You see, you, your, your spirit is saved, but how many knows that your mind, your will, and your emotions, they're not saved? Sometimes we think some thoughts that we shouldn't think. Sometimes we respond in ways we shouldn't respond. And sometimes we act in ways we shouldn't act. Because although your spirit is saved and regenerated, that does not mean your mind is saved. That doesn't mean that your emotions is saved. Your moods, your attitudes, your behavior, those things need to be saved on a continual basis. Can I hear an amen? All right, so your thinking, your behavior, your mouth, what you say, how you you conduct yourself, those things happen as you walk with the Lord and the Lord perfects his mercy and his grace and salvation in your life. And that is why some Christians have not grown in the Lord. They're still babies they still think things they shouldn't think. They still fly off of the mouth. They still act carnal. They, 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 they're not disciplined. They're, they, they walk in the carnality of the flesh all the time. Now, we all struggle with that, but there are more. Sometimes people are spiritual babies, and they, they're always there, all right? And so, but you can grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. So you have to grow in salvation. You can't stop. Okay? So, you were saved, past tense, you are being saved, and you shall be saved. All right? And so, you were saved. That is justification. He delivered you from the penalty of death, He delivered you from the penalty of hell. You are being saved. That is sanctification. That is salvation being worked out in your life. And you will be saved. That is glorification at the resurrection, where you will no longer have to deal with sin. Can I hear an amen? So, so we we worked we, we we looked at all that, and we're not going to spend any more time in reviewing. If you haven't been here, go to the website, listen to the other two sessions that we've completed. I do want to say this because I think it's important. In Christianity, uh, you you pri- primarily have three different schools of thought, and uh, or maybe we should say three views of interpretation. Okay. And it's important that you know this and that you understand this. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Peter said. He said for us to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. We're not supposed to argue the Scriptures, but we should know the Scriptures. Can I hear an amen? And so I want you to know the Scriptures. I want your mind to be expanded tonight. I want your heart to be expanded tonight. Tonight's lesson is not for it to be so deep. That you leave church thinking, what in the world did he talk about? But tonight's lesson is for you to be expanded in your thinking. Tonight's lesson is for you to be aware of what the scripture says. So I want you to, I want you to be, uh, I want you to engage the scriptures. I want your mind to be engaged in the scriptures, and I want your thinking to be stretched a little bit. In in Christianity, there are three views or three interpretations when it comes to this doctrine of salvation, okay? The first view that we looked at last week is called, uh, the first school of thought is called Calvinism, and everybody shout Calvinism. The second view is called Arminianism. Everybody shout Arminianism. And the third view is universalism. Universalism. Somebody say universalism. Those are the three views that's found with, primarily within the Christian church. The first view is called Calvinism. Now, where did that come from? Now, we're talking about salvation. This is how people view salvation. The first school of thought is called Calvinism. And Calvinism comes from a man by the name of John Calvin. He was a Protestant reformer, a French theologian in the 16th century. And uh, he taught this doctrine, uh, and it was primarily called the tulip theory, the tulip theory. And and you have that paper in front of you tonight that says Calvinism and this man John Calvin taught uh, this theory called the tulip theory and now he didn't come up with the acrostic tulip. That was a later development to help you understand, but I wanted to read to you his main thoughts. Are you ready? Everybody say T. T stands for total depravity. Total depravity. You know what that stands? That, stand, that, that simply means that every person who is born a sinner, every person is born a sinner, and every person that is born a sinner, which is the human race, is not inclined to do good. Sin has affected every person. And the reason that they use the word total is because sin has affected everything about the person. It's affected your thoughts, your emotions, your physical your physical body, sin has affected everything. That's the reason why the word total is used. So total depravity states this, we're all born into sinners, excuse me, we're all born into sin, and because we're born into sin, we are not naturally inclined to serve God. Okay, that's what it means. We're all sinners, we're born into sin because of what Adam and Eve did, and we're not naturally inclined to serve God or to love God. That's what it means to be totally deprived. And we agree with that for the most part. We agree with that. You, you stands for unconditional election. Unconditional election. You, unconditional election. That means that God, that means that God has, uh, that means if a person comes to Christ and he is saved It is because he or she was chosen by God to be saved. So in other words, God has elected some for heaven and some are elected for damnation. Some are elected for salvation and some are elected for damnation. In other words, God's sovereignty chooses those who will be saved, okay, and those who will be damned. That's what that means, There are some who are called to be saved or chosen to be saved. And I'm giving you very elementary terms here. We can use other terms that they use, but I'm just really making it very elementary so that we all can be on the same page tonight, okay? So it simply means unconditional election that if a person comes to Christ and that person is saved, it is because he or she was chosen by God to be saved. God selects some. And others he selects for damnation. That's simply what that means. Okay? Me and you, we don't, we don't necessarily agree with that. Okay, But this is their school of thought. And this school of thought is very prominent in some Baptist churches. It's very prominent in the Presbyterian church. It's very prominent in some conservative branches of Christianity. And so, so this doctrine simply states that if you, if you are saved, it's because God chose you as "quote unquote" the elect to be saved. L means, in the tulip theory, means limited atonement. Or uh, Calvinism, or those who follow this teaching, would probably use the word particular atonement. They don't like the word limited atonement because they certainly do not believe that Christ was limited in that Christ's atonement was limited in its power or value. That's not what they're teaching. But what they are teaching is that the particular atonement deals with only a group of people, the elect. When Christ died on the cross, he only saved the particular group of people. He only saved a group of people. There is the elect. He's he's only saving those who he he has called for salvation. So therefore, limited atonement, because there's limited, limited, uh, limited people who will come to salvation... One of their great scriptures that they love to use, and they love to use many, but uh, one of the one of the great scriptures, and let me see if I can find it here, um, that they love to use, uh, is Matthew 26 and verse 28. Matthew 26 and verse number 28. I want you to see the phrase here that these Calvinists will use. Matthew 26. Verse number 28, this is at the Last Supper. Jesus says this, For this is my body, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. He didn't say all. There's only many. And so these Calvinists will say, well, that's the elect. There's only a certain group that's saved and only a certain group that will make it to heaven. Some are selected for salvation and others are selected for damnation. Okay? limited atonement or particular atonement, then we have what we call irresistible grace. They teach irresistible grace. I, irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. They teach that the grace extended by God to the elect cannot be resisted by them. So in other words, the person who is chosen for salvation is predestined for salvation So therefore, they cannot resist the grace of God. So if God has called you to be saved, it don't matter where you live, where you live in the world, if you live in a lost tribe in the jungle of Asia somewhere, if you are destined to be saved, it doesn't even matter if you've never heard the gospel. If you're destined to be saved and predestined for election, you will be saved, okay? So there is, it's the doctrine of, Irresistible grace. Grace cannot be resisted by the elect. If you're chosen for salvation, you can't resist it. All right? You will eventually be saved. And then the last thing, and I'm just giving you simple terms, elementary terms here so we can all stay on the same page. All right? So, and the last one is the perseverance of the saints. It is probably what we call the doctrine of one saved, always saved. Okay? Or what we call eternal security. Those are language that you would understand, and I would understand tonight, is once you're saved, you're always saved. If You're in the palm of his hand, nobody can pluck you out. Those scriptures, it's the perseverance of the saints. They simply teach this, a truly saved person cannot fall away from their salvation. You say, well, brother, I, I, I knew brother Willie, and he served for 30 years in the church, and The last 10 years of his life, he was a reprobate. He turned against God, so you're telling me that he wasn't saved? Well, the Calvinists would tell you he was never saved in the beginning. That's what they would say. He was never saved. He was really never saved. Because if you're really saved, you would never lose out in the end. You, You would persevere to the end. If you are truly saved, you will not lose your salvation. The perseverance of the saints. So Calvinism... It comes from John Calvin, who is a Protestant reformer, a French theologian and pastor. He propagated this doctrine. Now, there are those who are extreme in this, but primarily these were the main tenets of his faith. And later, uh, they come up with the acrostic called TULIP to help us remember what these people believe. Now, there are lots of Christians that believe this. And some Christians believe this and don't even know they're adhering to Calvinism, you know. They don't even know what the word is, but they, they certainly believe once saved, always saved, and, and you know, and, and they adhere to this. But this is Calvinism at its very elementary form, okay? So everybody shout T with me, T, total depravity. Somebody say total depravity. Somebody say unconditional election. Then there is lo- limited atonement. Then irresistible grace. And the last P is the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. So, so basically tonight, I hope that we're all on the same page. How many would raise your hand tonight and say, Pastor, I understand the very core tenets of Calvinism tonight. Raise your hand. <clears throat> Everybody raise your hand. You understand the core tenets of Calvinism. Now, let me just for a few moments tonight, uh, we're going to look at some scripture to. Uh, counteract Calvinism, but let me explain to you Arminianism. Arminianism. Now go to your second page there, and it talks about Arminianism. Now Arminianism is um, is the belief that you and I hold to. Okay, so it's very important that we understand we hold to Arminianism. That this is the doctrine that we hold to. Now Arminianism comes from a Dutch reformer, and his last name was Arminius, and he was also in the 16th century, and he was a Dutch reformed theologian. And so he counteracted, he, 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 he actually spoke against Calvinism. He was not for Calvinism. And so this was his take on the interpretation of salvation in Scripture. Number one, Arminianism, they do believe in total depravity. We do believe that we're lost and we do need salvation, and we're not necessarily inclined to serve God unless grace propels us to. So, And there are some things that we disagree with Calvinism, and I think I should state that, but primarily we agree that we're all lost. Yes, we're all lost. We're lost because of what Adam did, and we all need salvation. But the difference that we adhere to with total depravity is that we cannot come to Christ unless grace pulls us to Christ. Not because we're elected. It's because grace pulls us to Christ. So number one, total depravity. Number two, atonement is intended for all. Atonement is intended for all. So number two, in Armenianism, the doctrine of Armenianism states number two. So on your paper, on number two, in Armenianism, number two, they believe that atonement is attended for all. Atonement is attended for all. In other words, all people have the opportunity for salvation. Every person has the opportunity for salvation. Now, everybody look up here. What does Calvinism teach us? Calvinism teaches not everybody will be saved. There are some that will be saved and some that will be damned. Arminianism teaches every person has the opportunity for salvation and God does not pick his favorites. Can I hear an amen? Somebody say amen. So atonement is attended for all. Number three, number three Jesus' death satisfies the justice of God. In other words, Jesus' death takes care of our penalty. All right? Removes the penalty from us. We, uh, Calvinism would agree with that. Jesus' death satisfies God's justice. Number four, grace... Number four, grace is resistible, which means you can resist the conviction and the the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You can resist the grace of God, even though it's pulling at your heart and you know you need to confess and you know you need to repent of your sin, you can resist it. Calvinism teaches if you are destined for salvation, it don't matter how much you resist it, you're going to be saved. That's what they teach. So do we see the difference? Calvinism teaches it doesn't matter how much you resist it and how much you don't want to be saved. If God has chosen you to be saved, you will be saved. Arminianism teaches you can resist it even though it's God's will for you to be saved. Can I hear an amen? So grace is irresistible. Grace is, excuse me, resistible. Grace is resistible. You can either accept it or reject it. Uh, Number five, election is conditional. Election is conditional is conditional. In other words, God alone determines who will be saved, and His determination is that all will be saved. That's God's determination, is that all will be saved. So therefore, this is what Arminianism teaches. Salvation is conditional. You can accept it or reject it. Calvinism teaches it's it's not conditional. God has either chose you to be saved, or He hasn't chosen you to be saved. Arminianism teaches that everybody has the opportunity to be saved. It is God's will that everybody be saved, but some will accept it and some will reject it. Number six, number six, Christ's righteousness is imputed to the believer. That means that the moment that you are saved, the moment you are saved, he imputes unto you righteousness. Christ's righteousness becomes your righteousness. Now, what is backsliding? This is something that Calvinism does not teach. Calvinism does not teach. You're not going to hear Calvinists singing in a worship service, oh, backslider, come home. Because they don't believe in backsliding. Because remember, Calvinism teaches, if you're truly saved, you will never lose your salvation. But Arminianism teaches... That you could be saved, and you could lose out in the end. Okay? Are we all with me? Somebody say amen. So what does it mean to backslide? Well, Arminianism teaches it's a deliberate, willful rejection of Christ. It's a deliberate, willful rejection. It's a process. So that doesn't mean that if I go out and drive my car tonight and say a cuss word, and the rapture happens, I'm not going to hell. Just because I go out and commit a sin tonight, I'm not going to hell. And, and, and that's the extreme of Armenianism. And we all grew up in that, that boy, I got to get saved every Sunday because I committed sin last night. So if the rapture happens, I'm going to hell. Where is that found in the Bible? Backsliding is a deliberate, willful turning away of Christ, it's a process backslide. You, you're walking backwards. It's not because you stumble a little bit and you mess up. You see, the extreme of Arminianism states that everything's a sin, and you might go to hell tonight if you don't get saved for the 34th time. Can somebody say amen? And, and some of us has been indoctrinated with that, and most of our prayer life is the, is the most, and listen to me, and I want to share, most of our prayer life is, is the burden of sin. Lord, if I've sinned, forgive me. I know, Lord, I sinned my thought. And so we spend 30 minutes confessing a bunch of sin and five minutes becoming intimate with the Lord because most of us, as extreme Armenianism, we think we can lose our salvation just by one thought. And that's not scripture at all. You can't lose your salvation just by one thought, it's a deliberate, willful turning away from Christ. The rest of you ain't saying amen. I don't know if you're just stuck in the, in the thing there or you're still thinking, I think I'm going to hell. <laughs> All right, so now listen, I am not teaching that you should go out to sin because a true believer don't want to sin. Can I hear an amen? There's no desire in you to want to sin. Can I hear an amen? But how many knows that sometimes we do make that decision that we say things and do things we shouldn't do not because you wanted to do it, it's because you know you you deliberately fell into it. But if you stay in the sin and continue to do it, it will turn into a rejection, a deliberate, willful rejection. So number, let's go on. Eternal security is also conditional. Eternal security. We don't propagate one saved, always saved. This is what we believe. All believers can have the assurance of salvation because salvation is conditioned on faith. Okay? So as long as your faith is in Christ, you will be saved. And you will continue to be saved. But the moment that you place your faith in other things instead of Christ, you're going to backslide and fall away. So you can be saved as long as you want to be saved. You can stay saved as long as you want to be saved, as long as you continue to put your faith in Christ alone. Because salvation is conditioned by faith up on the atonement of Christ. And you are preserved as long as you put your faith in Christ alone. Amen. Somebody say praise the Lord. So Arminianism is the doctrine that we hold. Now, in both schools of thought, there is obviously extremes on both sides. And the last view, which I'm not going to focus on at all. I'm just going to focus on these two. The last view is uh, universalism. That's the last school of thought, and there is nowhere on your paper to write that. I'm just going to throw this out. This How many remembers Carlton Pearson? Uh, In the 90s, Carlton Pearson was a great preacher in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And do you know what false doctrine that Carlton Pearson fell into? Universalism. And you know what he teaches? Everybody is already saved. That means every homosexual, every lesbian, every pervert. I mean, you go to every, every whoremonger every liar, they're already, everybody is saved. As a matter of fact, the devil himself will be saved in the end. Because the moment Jesus died on the cross, grace has been shed to the world, and therefore, everybody will be saved in the end. And the reason we evangelize is to bring awareness to people that the price is already paid. So it doesn't matter whether you reject it or accept it, you're you're saved. In the end, you're going to be saved. Okay? Does that make sense? In the end, now it doesn't make sense to us, but that's their dog. And that's a very elementary uh, definition of universalism. Christ died. Grace was shed to the world. Uh, Since grace was shed to the world, we all will be saved in the end. Even the devil himself will be saved in the end. God's sovereignty, his providence is going to have dominion. God controls everything. Everybody's going to be saved kind of thing. And we're not going to deal with all that. We're just going to deal with Arminianism tonight. Now, why do we believe in Arminianism? Why do, we believe, why do we believe in Arminianism? Well, one of the big scriptures, there's a big scripture that Calvinists will use to try to defend their faith. And Calvinism at its root, before I get to Arminianism, Calvinism at its root is called divine determinism. Everybody shout divine determinism. Shout it out real loud with me. Divine determinism. That is Calvinism at its very basic root. It is divine determinism. Calvinism is divine determinism. In other words, now look, don't lose me. Everybody look up here because I'm going to help you understand Calvinism. I'm going to just say a few things about Calvinism and I'm going to move on. Calvinism believes that God determines everything. Even sin, innocent suffering, sickness, God determines it all. Because they simply believe that God has a divine blueprint. And everything on that blueprint points to the glory of God. So sin and suffering and hell, all of it, somehow in God's blueprint is going to bring Him glory. So God determines everything. Calvinism at its basic structure believes that God determines everything. History and our lives unfold according to God's divine blueprint. And there's nothing that we can do about it. You can't pray it out. You can't sing it out. If God has determined it, it's going to happen. And there's nothing that you can do about it. Now John Piper, who is a modern day Calvinist, if you listen to his videos, now he's a pretty powerful preacher, I think, but he's a very strong proponent of Calvinism. He wrote, I think he wrote a book, or maybe it was a sermon that I heard, that he said, quote, quote, don't waste your cancer. And so in this, he's propagating that even people with cancer somehow is going to bring God glory, even if you die from it. So, and, so, you know, and he... You know, and there's other things I could say about it. I mean, he basically believes that the theater is the world, and the theater is playing out the script that God has wrote so that in the end, everything points to God, and God gets all the glory. So people being sick, hell, injustice, innocent suffering, all of that, the world is a theater playing out what the puppet master has designed for you to play. And in the end, it all points to God's glory. So we're all puppets in the hands of the puppet master, and we're carrying out the divine blueprint of what the puppet master wants us to play. That's Calvinism at its very basic. That the world is the theater of God's glory. Everything is predetermined. It's What is Calvinism? Divine determinism. Everything happens as it has been predestined and rendered for God's glory. Sin, evil, and hell will eventually bring God glory. Now, your question tonight, how in the world does hell bring God glory? Well, the Calvinist would say the reason that it brings God glory is because it reveals God's justice. So therefore, in the end, it's really going to bring God glory. Now, tonight, that kind of foggles your mind tonight because we've heard the scriptures, God is love and God is perfect and God, you know that, and so this goes against our very culture as a church, but there is people who believe this. Now, and, and for us to sit here, because this is what happens in church, we sit there and say, ah, I don't need to know that, I'm just going to think about balancing my checkbook. And the issue is, is that if we, right theology produces right behavior, it really does. And it creates the worldview in which you live. If you've got a worldview that every time you think a bad thought you're going to hell, you're going to live in a bad worldview. Your life is going to be miserable as a Christian because you don't understand basic theology. Can I hear an amen up in this Pentecostal church? And so therefore, we are constantly, it's kind of what the theologian said, functional bondage. You know what functional bondage is? We live in bondage all of our life, but it's functional. It's functional. We can live with it. And some of us have lived with functional heresy. We've lived with wrong doctrines because we've been taught the wrong thing, and so therefore it leaves us in condemnation half of our life, and we're always walking under guilt, condemnation, and shame because right theology really really does produce right behavior. Can I hear an amen? And so uh, everything in Calvinism, Calvinism states everything is determined by God. Everything. Sin Innocent suffering, hell, it's all determined by God. God, and now, now they wouldn't say this. God is the puppet master and you're the, his puppet and you're following his divine blueprint. They, would, they wouldn't say that, but in essence, that's what they believe, okay? Now, they use this, the, they use this uh, scripture. This is one of their primary scriptures in Isaiah 45 and verse 7. They love this scripture. Now, the Calvinists really love this scripture, okay? So let's just look at Isaiah 45 and verse number 7. Isaiah 45 and verse number 7. And I want you to see what it says. Isaiah 45 and verse number 7. And this is the Lord speaking in the Old Covenant in verse number 7. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 7. And God says this, I form the light, I create darkness, I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. And so Calvinists says, "See, it's the Lord. It's the Lord that created evil. It's the Lord that's created all of this stuff, and because, in the end, it's going to bring him the glory. It's going to bring him the glory." Uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 19 is one of their other favorite scriptures they love to use. Romans chapter 9, verse 19. And let me just break the news down to you. I mean, let me just break it to you. You can use the Bible to justify anything you really want to do in your life. Can I hear an amen? You can really use the Bible to justify your sin. You can use the Bible to justify your works. Because listen, I've been pastoring for, let's see, um, uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years, and I've heard all kinds of people say a bunch of hogwash. You know, and primary, the most hogwash, hogwash list number one. Okay, y'all ready for hogwash list number one? This is is hogwash list number one. I don't feel like it. That's hogwash. I don't feel like I'm saved. Hogwash number two, I don't want to serve. Well, it doesn't matter whether you want to serve or not. As a Christian, the Holy Ghost is inside of you, and you have a desire not to be selfish, but to serve the church and the world. Can I hear an amen? So it's, and Pentecostals are the worst at it horrible. We're always about feelings. And listen, feelings are good. But as a Christian, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, not I, but Christ that lives inside of me. It is a faith walk, not a feeling walk. And, and hogwash number three, God told me so. Oh, really? God God's been talking to you a whole lot. And if God's been really talking to you, why are you still living with somebody that's not your spouse? And if God's really talking to you, why aren't you not disciplined in your giving? And if God's really talking to you, why are you still dressing like the world? Come on, somebody. If you're really hearing the voice of God, don't you think the Holy Spirit is a teacher and He would lead you into all truth? And God ain't talking as much as you think God's talking. The Holy Spirit lives in you and the holy spirit is a the one that walks beside of you and the holy spirit impresses us and moves us in the direction that we should go yes god could talk god has already spoken and yes he speaks in a still small voice but i don't think that god is saying all this stuff that people say he's saying because if god is saying all this stuff god must be bipolar and forgotten to take his medicine i'm serious And I say that respectfully, if people struggle with that respectfully, that's fine. There's medicine, we can take care of that. But we almost demonstrate that God has a a sickness. We have, we really have, we really have put names on God that shouldn't be there. One moment God did this, and the next moment God didn't do it because and then we have to lie to cover up because we thought, thought God said it. And, God, and, and, and because we don't understand just basic theology, and that is this the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He's the Paraclete, he the teacher. And, and listen, it, I've, I've just learned to say, listen, sometimes I, I think I'm obeying the voice of the Holy Spirit, but sometimes, you know, my flesh, sometimes, is, sometimes I let it rule. So I just, feel, I, I just I feel the promptings of the Holy Spirit in this direction. Can I hear an amen? So everything in Calvinism, everything happens by God's divine plan. Everything. Everything's predetermined. This is how it's going to happen. So 9-11, the Holocaust of the Jews, all of that was determined by God, divine determinism, it was going to happen, and there was nothing we can do about it. It, That's how God wanted to happen. So Armenianism teaches that Yes, God knows everything. God is in charge. Hold on, hold on. Look at me. Our meeting is the teachers. Yes, God is sovereign. God is king. God is in charge. But God is not in control. He's in charge. He's the king of the universe. He is sovereign. And if he chooses to be in control, he can because he's God. But the basic tenets of Arminianism teaches that God limits himself. He restrains his power. He holds back from controlling everything. Because mankind was created in his image to have a free will. And their free will Controls the course of events in human history. And if so, we can invite God to reverse the course of history. Can somebody say amen? So, Armenianism at its va- basic core limits, it says that God is in charge, God is sovereign, God is holy, but God chooses to limit himself, He restrains His power and he holds back from controlling everything. Okay? Why? Now, why does God do that? Well, Arminianism teaches the reason that God limits himself, the reason that God restrains his power, the reason that God holds back from controlling everything is because God chooses for the sake of man, because man was created with a free will. Armenianism is based in love. the basic disagreement between Calvinism and Armenianism is not god's sovereignty or predestination it's god's character god 's character is at stake here that's the major difference between Armenianism and calvinism it's god's character we both believe in his sovereignty and we do believe that God knows all things and we believe in uh, you know predestination but the very root of the difference between the both schools of thought, is God's character. If Calvinism is true, then God wouldn't be all loving and all perfect. He wouldn't be. Couldn't be by His very nature, all loving and perfect. And if God elects some to be saved and some others, and He can do what He wants to do, then why doesn't He elect everyone to be saved? if he's so loving and so good. But Calvinism teaches, no. Some are elected and some are elected for damnation. But my thing is, if God is so perfectly good and trustworthy and honest and full of love, then why doesn't he predestine all of us to be saved and elect all of us for salvation? I mean, what's the difference between God and the devil? The devil wants all of us to go to hell, and God, the God of Calvinism, states, well, God only wants some people to go to hell. It's a character issue with me. Do you see what I'm saying here? And if Calvinism is true, then what do you do with Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 37, where Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem? What do you do with God incarnate crying over his own city? In Matthew 23 and verse number 37, He, why does he weep? Now get this, why does he weep? He weeps because people are rejecting him. If you are in a Calvinist, why does that matter? Some are saved and some are damned. It doesn't matter. Why do you weep over it? But here God in his very nature, is very loving and very good, and he is distraught here because some have chosen to reject him. Not because they were elected, but because they were chosen to reject him. And here Jesus is weeping because over Jerusalem because they've rejected the prophets, they've rejected him. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 3. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. What do you do with scriptures like that? What do you do with the scriptures? Now Calvinism has an argument for every scripture. Okay? But what about 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse number 4? 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse number 4? Very clearly, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Scripture after Scripture. You see, if you would line all the Scriptures up about Armenianism, you would find more Scriptures in the Bible that demonstrates that God wants all to be saved than you would find the few that would say that He only desires some to be saved. You see... Now, it's important that you know that Calvinism and Arminianism are both Christian. They both love Jesus. They both believe in the deity of Jesus. They both believe in the Trinity. They both believe in original sin. So there's lots of things we agree on. But when it comes to this basic tenet of predestination and salvation, there is strong disagreement between both of them. I went to seminary to a Wesleyan seminary, which is Asbury. And I went there for five years and did my master's of divinity there. And the teachers would strongly come against Calvinism because we were a holiness seminary uh, in the tradition of Wesleyanism. And that of course is Armenianism, which we believe that salvation is for all. And I remember in seminary teachers would give us cartoons of Calvinists arguing with Armenianist Christians over this issue of salvation. It is certainly a salvation. So I am saying this, that between these two schools of thought, I believe the basic disagreement is over God's character, in my opinion. I believe it's God's character. Calvinists will argue that God's love, you see, that God's love and God's goodness, that God is full of love and God is full of goodness. They won't argue with that. But their issue is, they say, well, it's different than ours. It's, it's, it's different. God's love and God's goodness is much different than what we could ever imagine. So therefore, in His love and His mercy and His grace, He can predestine some for hell. Because His love and goodness and grace is much different than what we could ever imagine. My problem is, the devil wants everyone to go to hell. And why is, is Calvin... Some are elected and some are elected for salvation. I think that's a character issue with me. Devil wants all, but yet God only wants some. You know? Calvinism teaches that Satan, get this. Satan is an instrument in God's hand so that God would get the glory at the end. Our theology teaches that there is really an enemy who is Satan, and he really is resisting the will of God in the earth. Come on, somebody. That, that's the difference. Calvinist teaches he's just an instrument and there's nothing you can do about it. If it's predestined that the enemy is going to do this, there is nothing. That you want, you're not going to find spiritual warfare in a Calvinist church because they think everything's being determined. But in an Arminianist church, how many knows that we do some spiritual warfare? We bind and loose because we know that our prayers eventually can make a difference. And somebody say Amen. It's kind of like Calvinists would teach this. This is a simple uh, illustration, and hopefully I can explain it well. Calvinists would believe that God is the employer, and He gives you a check. And God deposits the check into your account, whether you like it or not. You have the money. Arminianists teach teaches God gives the paycheck, but you've got to endorse it to put it in your account. In other words, you've got to accept it or you've got to reject it. The check is given to you, but by your signature, you accept the check or reject the check by putting it into your account by signing it. A Calvinist would say, well, it doesn't matter. If God wants to give you the check, he's going to deposit it in your account. Whether you like it or not, you don't even have to sign to endorse it. But in the Arminianist theology, says, God gives the check, but you've got to endorse it. You've got to accept it or reject it. And somebody say amen. So, what is the basic tenet of Armenianism? God limits himself. He limits himself because he chooses to do it, because he has to. He restrains his power. He holds back from controlling everything, although God is in charge. And armenianism listen, armenianism does not teach that God is banished from the world and somehow... You know, God is distant from the world. No, no, no. Arminianism teaches that God is in control. I oh, mean, excuse me, God is in charge. And the, God works through the acts and the prayers of His people to change the course of events. He works through people. You see, God wants, and, and I said that to say this, that God wants our freely offered and given love not the love that he has instilled in us without without our consent. Let me say that again. Maybe Jeremy can put it behind me. God wants our freely offered and given love, not the love, according to Calvinism, that is instilled in us without our consent. I'll say that again. God wants our freely offered and given love. Not the love that is instilled into us without our consent. God is not a puppet master. We're not puppets in his theater. And we're not acting out a divine blueprint so that in the end God could get the glory. In other words, God is in charge God is aware. God is active among His creation. And God chooses to use people so that in the end, He will still get the glory. You see, God is sovereign by right. But He chooses not to control everything. He could, but He doesn't. He could, but He doesn't. God is sovereign by right, but He chooses not to control everything. Hell Innocent suffering, sin, and evil are not God's perfect plan. God permitted it to happen because His perfect plan wasn't followed. You see, sin, evil, innocent suffering is not a part of God's perfect plan. It was because of people's actions, their free will. God permitted it to happen but He didn't cause it to happen. As in Calvinism teaches, everything's determined. and Arminianism teaches, God is in charge. He doesn't necessarily control everything. God is not distant from us. He's very active in the world, but He lets people make that decision. God is not banished, but neither is He controlling everything that happens. Now, you say, well, Pastor, I don't agree with that. But Jesus said, pray like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom, done, Thy kingdom, come. Thy will be done on, as it is done. Why do we need to pray that God's will be done on earth, as is done in heaven, if it's already determined? You have a part to play in this. You see, so Arminianism teaches. If you look at T, you know Calvinism teaches T. Tea. Arminianism's response to that would be, yes, we all are born into sin. And by very nature, we don't, are not inclined to love God. However, hold on, however, there is prevenient grace. Grace is working on our hearts to either accept it or reject it. Can I hear an amen? Now, some churches get this. Some, this would explain infant baptism, wouldn't it? Infant baptism is because people believe in original sin, the sin of Adam and Eve. So therefore, they believe that if the baby is not baptized, that baby could go to hell. Because baptism, regenerational baptism, is what saves an individual, not not the prevenient grace of God. Does that make sense? So, we believe in total depravity. Total, as in everything about the man is deprived. His mind, his reason, his physical body, we're all damaged because of sin. We're all alienated from God. But we believe, as meaningness teaches, that grace pulls us to accept it or reject it, not that God has ordained some and rejected some. What about unconditional election? We don't believe in unconditional election. We believe in corporate election, that God chooses all of us to be saved and we accept it or reject it or limited atonement that somehow only a select few, but the scriptures is very clear that he died for all. First Timothy chapter two, verse number six. First Timothy chapter two and verse number six. I want you to see this first Timothy chapter two and verse number six. I want you to see this scripture. The Bible says, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. In other words, he died for all. And what about irresistible grace? They teach you can't resist grace. If you're called to be saved, there ain't nothing you can do about it. But Arminianist teaches you can resist the grace of God. The Bible says in Acts chapter 7 and verse number 51. Acts 7 and verse 51. Look behind me on the screen at Acts 7. Verse 51, and I want you to see how you can resist the grace of God. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised in your hearts and ears. You, and this is the apostle saying to the people, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, and so do you. Scripture after Scripture teaches us that you can resist the grace of God or resist the Holy Spirit. Calvinism teaches you can't resist it. Now, let me tonight, for the last 20 minutes, give you some strong Scripture that Calvinism uses that once you're saved, you're saved, and ain't nothing you can do about it, okay? So we're going to look at that tonight, okay? So I'm going to give you scripture they teach, and I'm going to give you a counter reaction to that of why we don't believe that, okay? So take your Bible to John. Everybody take your Bible, your phone, whatever you have. It will be behind me also, but I also want you to see it in scripture. John chapter 6 and verse number 37. John chapter 6 and verse number 37. John chapter 6 and verse number 37, this deals. This scripture they use to deal with irresistible grace. You can't resist the grace of God. If you're saved, you're going to be saved. Acts chapter 6 and verse number 37, if you're there, shout amen. This is is the words of Jesus, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. This is a famous scripture that the Calvinists will use they will say, listen, this is irresistible grace because if the Father gives me the elect and they come to me, the ones who come to me, I will by no means cast out all that the Father gives me. You see that? There are some are chosen, not all. All that. there's are certain a certain group. But when, he come, when they come to me, that certain group... He says, I will by no means cast out. Therefore, they're eternally saved. Okay? So you can't lose your salvation because you're in the palm of his hand, and nothing you can do to be unsaved or backslide. Okay? Now, at first glance, that scripture makes a lot of sense, don't it? It's good preaching scripture. Okay? So it's good. The helmet knows you can find scripture for anything. Okay? So let's now what I want to do is I want you to see that there's more to this scripture than this one verse. And what happens in Christianity, and we're very bad at this, very bad. And let me just say it again, very bad. I think I'll say it again. We take one scripture and we build a whole church on it or a denomination or build our whole life upon that one thing when really you need to look at the preceding scriptures before and after and determine the context in which the Scripture was written. Anytime you take a Scripture out of context, you can make it a pretext for anything you want. So don't take Scripture out of context. And so I want you to look at it. I want you to look at verse number 40. Look at verse number 40. If you just go down, verse number 40. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son believes in Him, may have everlasting life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. So you see one scripture, verse 37, says there's only a certain amount, it's implied here, that the Father will give. And yet in verse number 40, it states that everyone who believes in Him may have everlasting life. Do you see that? Look at verse number 45 then. Verse number 45. Verse number 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Therefore, everyone, somebody say everyone, who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, it seems to me that, and I'm going to show you more scripture here, you have one scripture that's implied that only a certain will come, and yet I've just read two scriptures which states that everyone who believes... Are y'all with me tonight? It is written, and they shall all be taught of God. Therefore, everyone who has heard, everyone who has heard, and everyone has learned of me from the Father comes to me. So that seems like it's for everyone, don't you think? So verse number 44, they also use this scripture, verse number 44. No one can come unto the Father unless the Father sent me and draws him and I will raise them up in the last day. See, so they'll use this scripture and say, well, you can't come. Not everybody can come to the Father. There's only a certain group. No one can come unto the Father unless you're drawn. So that is total depravity, okay? You can't come in yourself unless the Spirit draws you. So that's total depravity. The Father draws you. That speaks of unconditional election. And you cannot come unless He draws you. That's election because only a few can come. right? Does that? Y'all get that. The primary scripture that they use here. But if you look at verse number 29, so they use those scriptures to state unconditional election, irresistible grace, total depravity, but then they forget about these scriptures. Verse number 29. John chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him who... He sent. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Okay? Look at verse number 35. John 6, verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Okay? Look at verse number 40. And this is the will of him. Who sent me? That everyone who sees the Son believes in Him, believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Verse number forty-seven. <clears throat> verse number forty-seven. John six, verse forty-seven. Most assuredly, I say unto you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So, what are you saying, Pastor John? Two scriptures that stated it implied that only a few would come, and yet I read one, two, three four, five scriptures that stated everyone who believes in Christ will be saved. And you see how you can make a doctrine of just taking one scripture and not looking at the whole whole context of the whole verse, the the chapter we read, implied more that if you would believe, you would be saved. Everyone that believes will be saved. But yet they took two scriptures and implied that, you know, only a few will be saved. So what's our response? Scripture interprets Scripture. I believe the two Scriptures that imply a few is actually in context talking about everyone who would believe in Him. And if you believe in Him, you shall never be plucked out of His hand. Now what about John chapter 15, verse 16? John chapter 15 and verse number 16. John chapter 15 verse number 16. Now, this is one of the scriptures the Calvinists will use. Verse number 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, and that whatever you ask, in my, ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Now, the Calvinists would say, see, you didn't choose him. He chose you, so it didn't say he chose everybody. He's speaking to a particular group of people. I chose you. You didn't didn't choose me. I chose you. So this scripture is talking about unconditional election. Some are chosen and some are rejected. Okay? But this is our defense on this scripture. Speaking of context, Jesus is speaking in red here. And the context is he's speaking to disciples about their apostleship. He's speaking to disciples about being apostles and remaining and having fruit. Now, how do I know that? Now, y'all with me? This scripture, I believe, strongly suggests he's not talking about salvation in general. He's talking about disciples whom he is talking to about them being apostles and remaining in the fruit or having fruit. Now, why is that? Because Scripture interprets Scripture because John chapter 6, verse 70, John chapter 6 and verse number 70 says says this, John 6 and verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is the devil? So, Judas is obviously, is in the context here. I chose you to remain, have fruit. The problem with Judas is he did not remain in Christ. He did not bear the fruit. He was never really saved. Because saved people have fruit. Somebody say amen. So this scripture, who they try to use for general salvation, has really nothing to do with salvation. It's dealing with Jesus choosing his apostles and telling them that they should remain and have fruit. I've chosen you to be an apostle. I've chosen you to have fruit. And yet, one of them, although he was chosen, never remained in him, nor did they have fruit. Now you say, Well, Pastor, I don't believe that. Do you John chapter 15? Jesus makes a whole discourse about the, the branches being connected to the vine, or the, the vine being connected. In other words, you remain in me, and my words remain in you, and you shall bear fruit. The disciples are hearing this. The context is he's preparing his disciples to take over because he's getting ready to die and ascend it. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with the position that they're getting ready to take, which is apostles. And he's saying, listen, you've got to bear fruit here. You've got to remain in me. Because if you don't remain in me and I remain in you, you're going to slip away. And Jude has slept, he, he, he definitely had fallen away. What about Jude? Jude chapter number one. Jude chapter number one. Jude is an interesting book. Jude chapter one. Jeremy, if you could put it up there quickly. Jude chapter one. And verse number three. Verse number three. Beloved. While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I find it necessary to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to you, to the saints. For certain men have crept in unaware, marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men. Okay, Go to verse number 5. But I want to remind you, though, once you knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Verse number 6, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved an everlasting chains, under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, similar manner to to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, going after strange flesh, set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also those dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, contending with the devil, when disputed about the body of Moses, did not bring against him a rallying accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like beasts in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. Cain wasn't always a fallen person here. He once believed. But woe to them that follow the way of Cain. Woe to them that run greedily after the heir heir of Balaam for profit and perish in the rebellion of His whole discourse here is that you have people in heaven, angels, who, yep, they sinned. They were with God, and yet they had fallen. And yet you had those who believed in God who was in the wilderness, and yet they, some of them died. His whole discourse here is these, some of these people had believed, but in the end they had fallen. He says, I'm writing this to you to fight for your faith. You've got to be, you fight for it. It's, it's, yes, you've got to believe it, but you've got to contend for the faith and continue to walk in the faith. Look, look at Acts chapter 13. I've got five minutes left. Acts chapter 13. And verse number 48. Acts chapter 13, and verse number 48. Acts 13, and verse number 48. Acts 13, verse number 48. Now, this is a great scripture they use. Great scripture. Verse, and at first glance, it really does support Calvinism to a great extent. But there's something I think needs to be stressed here. Verse number 48 now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as he, excuse me, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So Calvinism states, see, there's only some that will be appointed for salvation. Others are appointed for damnation. But, and I'm not saying that people who were Calvinist theologians, they're very smart. But one of the things that gets overlooked sometimes is the Greek translation of the word, "were appointed unto, appointed unto. That phrase there, the whole phrase, appointed or had been appointed, that phrase is in the Greek, and I know this doesn't mean anything to you, but I'm going to say it. It's a middle passive voice. Because in Greek, when you look at a Greek word, you parse the word, Because some words are singular, some words are plural, some words are feminine, some words are masculine, some words are passive, some are non-passive, so you have to parse the words. This phrase that says, had been appointed, is in the middle passive voice, which actually states something, as many as set themselves to eternal life believed. In other words, those who had faith, those who wanted eternal life, believed which changes the whole context of the Scripture. How many knows that as many as set themselves to eternal life? believe? Now, the Calvinists will argue that point still. They understand it's a middle passive voice. It's hard to keep arguing over all these Scriptures when all of them keep pointing us to all be saved. Can I hear an amen? My last thing. I got two minutes here, three minutes. I won't be done at nine o'clock. Okay? Oh, excuse me, eight o'clock. Romans chapter nine. Now I can go into more of this. I mean, I feel like I'm pressured for time, so I can go back to some of these next week. So, Romans chapter nine, verse uh, number sixteen. Now this scripture is this scripture is the. This is the one they used to nail the coffin in. You ready for that? I mean, this is the scripture they use to nail the coffin. If you really want to find a scripture that promotes only a certain few will be saved, this is the scripture. Ready? Acts chapter 9, verse 16. Um, or look at verse uh, 14. Nine, Romans 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I, on whomever. I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom whomever I have compassion. So then, is it not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy? In other words, it's not about you, whether you come or whether you don't come. It's all about God. Okay? Well, the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, the Calvinist would say, See, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and God, he, he was destined, predestined, to be used by the hand of God like this. And at first glance, it is very true. But let's go on. Verse number 18. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he, he wills, and whom, whom he wills, he hardens. See that? Verse 19. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault for he or who has resisted his will? Go to verse number twenty two. What if what if God, wanting to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Verse twenty three so that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for his glory. So it it looks as though this is a pretty strong argument. There are those who are predestined. There are those who are predestined for damnation. There are vessels of honor, and there's vessels of dishonor, but all of it's going to show God's glory. But, and, and the quote-unquote homosexual crowd uses arguments like, nowhere in Scripture do you find Jesus coming against homosexuality? And, and, we, and that, that is strongly argued, obviously. But I want to make sure that we understand that in the Bible, you have n- laws which, which are pertaining to a nation. Laws that's pertaining to ceremonial rites. Laws that's pertaining to certain things, or the national. There's national laws. There's ceremonial laws in the Old Testament, and so and then there's the moral law. Homosexuality is a moral law because laws that have to do with fabrics in the the Book of Leviticus. This fabric can't touch this fabric. That's a That is a ceremonial law, a national law given to the nation of Israel. But the moral law is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. Natural laws and ceremonial laws change, but the moral law never changes. And that's why if you don't understand those three dominant laws in the Scriptures, you're going to get confused really quickly. And when you look at Romans chapter 9, this has to do with the nation of Israel. It does not have to do with salvation to the world. Because if you look at Romans chapter number 1, even the heading of your chapter says Israel's rejection of Christ. It's dealing with not salvation in common. It's dealing with the nation of Israel. But yet the Calvinist wants to make an argument that this is dealing with salvation for all, when actually Paul here is making an argument for the nation of Israel. He's making an uh, argument for Israelites, he's making an argument for the Ishmaelites the Ishmaelites, some of them are vessels of dishonor, some of them the the Israel is the vessel of honor but God has prepared it all he is speaking about the nation of Israel and not necessarily a common salvation for all human race would you agree with that, say amen so um, verse number 1 through 5 for instance, he says verse number 1 Romans chapter, Romans chapter 9, verse number 1, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me the witness of the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow, continual grief in my heart. Uh, verse number 3, For I could wish that I myself was a, a curse from Christ, for my brethren, my countrymen, according to my flesh, who are Israelites. Verse number 4, Who are Israelites to whom uh, pertain to the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Verse number 1 through 5 is speaking of the nation of Israel. Look at verse number 5. Of whom are the fathers from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is overall eternally blessed of God. And we're going to finish this next week. So I'm going to make a case next week because... Verse 21, he speaks of one lump. That one lump has the Israelites and the Ishmaelites. Okay, so it's not pertaining to salvation in general, to the world, it's pertaining to the nation of Israel.